This is episode 10, Renaissance Troubadour. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, good morning. This is Stephen Levitt coming to you from the iCreate Sound Studio. In spite of the fires and the power outages, which is why this episode didn't go out on Halloween, today I have a fun episode for you, and hopefully you will enjoy the conversation I have with Dustin Stonebrook, who is a composer and also a horror film buff. We get into that later in the episode, as well as a renaissance man. We really had fun with this conversation. It was one of our earlier episodes that we recorded at the very beginning of the podcast. So this one's been in the bank for a while. And there's quite a lot of stories. Dustin is always entertaining. He is a recording engineer, a guitar player. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He has also been a stuntman. And he was pre-law before he changed direction in his life. And he's an excellent friend. So, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with all-around Renaissance dude, Dustin Stonebrook. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. Man, that violin's 750 years old. It's insane. Yeah, I couldn't believe when she was telling me that. I was like, you carry that around <laughs> in a little tiny you know like on your back backpack type of a uh, case i think her viola if i remember right was like somewhere around 350 something like that it's like the movie the red violin oh yeah that's a trippy mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. yeah so that was your original piece right uh shadows requiem that was a cool day getting to record violin here mm-hmm. yeah it's a great space the, the violin sounded incredible um i think we ended up using was it the baby bottle on that one um i remember it was the blue yeah the baby bottle that i have sounds great on Mm -hmm. violin it just does something yeah it was exactly what i was looking for and ended up being a thousand times better than the original midi uh, the sample library stuff that i had put in there Uh, uh, caitlin wolfberg was our violinist on that one and viola player so she did both brought in a 750 year old violin and then a 350 year old viola which is just i love the movie the red violin and when she told me that i was like oh god i, I wish i knew the history of this like i wish i could I, talk we should to ask it. her sometime <laughs> sounds like that's a great sounding mic by the way i love these Sennheisers. my friend mm-hmm. jacob nilsson who did indie airplay radio before podcasting got big mm-hmm that was part of his portable rig, those little Sennheiser 835s. These guys? Yeah, and they sound great for podcasting. I mean, mm-hmm. it's comparable to this SM7 that I'm using. Yeah, I like those SM7s. Those yeah, are... I would love to get another RE20. Mm. Those okay. sound great. But I had one I bought on eBay a long time ago, and I sold it because mm. <laughs> I needed the cash. And they actually went up in value. Either that or inflation's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a good mic. I think the SM7, I'm liking the sound of it on the podcast, but the, but those little Sennheisers, they really, you know, mm. I think everybody always thinks they need a Yeti or they think they want to do yeah. a condenser for podcasts, which I suppose could be good, but I'm always a big fan of that radio yeah, sound. that low end. Yeah, uh, proximity effect. You get that by getting closer to the mic and mm-hmm. by using a dynamic mic and <laughs> talking in your bedroom voice, <laughs> which I don't have much of, so uh, yeah. it helps to have a beefy mic. <laughs> oh, you don't have a pillow talk? A pillow talk, hmm. yeah. How many times have we Tasty. had love, made mm. love? <laughs> oh, baby. Uh, um, what was that movie? Armageddon. You have such sweet pillow talk. <laughs> never saw it. Do you remember the You've one? You've never seen Armageddon. There are numerous movies like that that I've never seen mm. um, that are on the list of people. You what? Like, you need to stop right now. <laughs> yeah. I, if I started making a list, which I should have done like 20 years ago, it would be like a foot long. Mm. But yeah, so I was thinking, wasn't there like an asteroid movie that came out about the yeah, same time? It was Deep Impact. Deep Impact. Mm. Yes. <laughs> that one I never saw. Yeah. I figured one disaster movie with a comet was good enough for that particular year. Well, they come out in pairs. Like there was another Godzilla-like movie that came out around the same time mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Hollywood loves to copy. Mm-hmm. Come out with waves of these well, it was, music does the same thing. You too. wonder how that happens though. Like somebody gets wind that a studio greenlit a script and these pitches, they're like, it's like Jaws with airplanes. Like, <laughs> you know, everyone's got to have their elevator speech. And I think that's where the idea of the elevator speech came from. These pitches are just asininely short. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's kind of a thing in Hollywood to copycat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of a Hollywood thing, too. Like, everybody's looking for the style, what's cool, what's happening. What's the new trend? Well, yeah. And then, yeah. then everybody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. it they, I mean, they do it a lot in music, too. Yeah, um, soundtracks right now, yeah. really, I mean, there's very little innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, supposedly every 10 years, that's when you should revamp a song. So if you're looking for a tune that you want to cover or something like that, go back to the top 40 list 10 years ago, grab one of those songs that you really like, and then move it forward. And maybe that's what the Hollywood's doing. It's like, all right, this is our disaster year. Mm-hmm. All right, this is our love story year. Oh, this is our, like, Legends of the Fall year, kind of yes. those, those things. Exactly. Well, you know, and, and too, I've noticed with music, it's coming around faster, the cycles, but I don't know if it's a 10-year span or if it's just they're starting to cycle through the decades quicker mm. and in reverse order, like they're going backwards. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you had guys like Jack White that came in and, and hid old Memphis blues in a rock casing yeah, and then was able to become popular. And then you got have guys following in their footsteps, you know, like the Black Keys and uh, artists that are going more the blues route. That was it, yeah, kind of like almost like the uh, Zeppelin revival that mm-hmm. happened. There was kind of a classic rock revival when I was... In my 20s and doing gigs, I played a mm. B3 looking thing and did this kind of John Paul Jones thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love John Paul Jones. Yeah. Oh, what a man. Yeah. That's the consummate musician. Like, that is the example that everybody should follow if you want to be a professional musician. Yes. John Paul Jones. Holding it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kept, stayed out of the limelight, but still had all of his music and all of his um, influence on everything that Led Zeppelin did, you know, all the or- orchestrations, a lot, uh, all the piano parts, and of course all the bass parts, but kind of taking a step back instead of needing to be in that limelight mm-hmm. and just being that consummate professional. Like, that that's the thing with a musician is, like, no ego. You're there to play your part. You're not necessarily there to be the star, you know. And uh, essentially by being able to take a step back and remove that ego from what you're doing 
you actually shine a lot more. Well, I think you get the best of both worlds. I have family who's in the movie business, and I would say they're well-known at their trade. So Mm -hmm. in other words, anyone who's in the stunt business knows who my mom is. Mm -hmm. And I hear, wow, she's the best in the business. She's amazing. She's talented. But she can go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. She can go to the mall. She can do normal things like normal people. And Mm -hmm. she doesn't get hounded Mm. by crowds. And I feel like that for me also is one of the reasons I enjoy being behind the console. Mm -hmm. There's something about having every piece of myself in the creative process, but then not needing to wall myself into some compound. Really, Mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that I've met a few celebrities and it seems like it'd be really hard to know who your friends are, like Mm -hmm. your real friends. Because in in this town, everybody wants something from you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've even noticed that a little bit within the stunt business. Like my parents are well-known in the stunt business. So people, I can tell when somebody's getting close to me because Mm -hmm. they like my parents and they think it's going to give them like a leg up on their career. And I can smell it. You know, and I've I've had a few friends that I helped them get started in the business because they were talented, Mm -hmm. but could kind of tell when somebody was just, they would drop off. Like if, you know, they got what they needed, their careers go. And I have friends like that. They just, they don't even say hi. They're not even Facebook friends anymore because (laughs) it's just like, yeah, I was just your friend. They got what they needed and you're gone. And you know what? And and, and I didn't care because I could kind of tell, but in this case, it was somebody who really was talented and really his dad was a stunt man you know mm-hmm. his dad passed away so it was like my good deed <laughs> i got you <laughs> you know but yeah. i mean that's one of the things i've really enjoyed about working with some of the session players that i've worked with is that there is no ego and i've worked with some of the coolest people who've played on some of the biggest tours and you you just you're humans mm-hmm. and you're humans who make music and it rocks being together and doing stuff. Every time you get a chance to work together, it's just like, wow, that was cool. Mm-hmm. Let's get a photo to remember this. Because 20 years from now, when we work on something else, we're going to be like, hey, remember that <laughs> session? <laughs> oh, remember we got so wasted afterward. It's just like uh, police officers just being able to, like when you get pulled over, just remember that, okay, this guy's clocking in and out. It's just his job. That's the same way as a professional musician. It's just clock in. Do you think, just like Caitlin that played on Shadows Requiem, you know, Caitlin Wolfberg came in, did what she needed to, no ego, very much a professional musician. It only took two and a half hours to run roughly 12 to 15 She uh, played viola and violin Mm -hmm. impeccably. Mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of violinists and cellists and violists, and she was one of the best. Absolutely. That I've worked with. And no no attitude, super nice, fun Mm -hmm. to be around, like (laughs) great player, takes direction. Mm Mm-hmm. It was She was cool. a trooper, too. It was yeah. so hot in here. Uh, I when know. We ended up setting up a fan off to the side that she would turn on between takes. Yeah. And, you know, she still played amazingly. Didn't have the diva thing where she's like, oh, it's just too hot. We're not going to be able to work right now. Yeah. But I'm still charging you for the time kind of thing. It's just right. like... Yeah, and um, then we went out for Thai food afterward. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was fun and we had a great time. Mm-hmm. I've been recommending her to a number of people. I mean, she really impressed me. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I have probably five other players that I can recommend for things. So I remember I was just having you come in because you did yeah. some engineering for me in the studio. And I think you were trying to decide if you were going to bring her in because you were like, well, it's expensive and I don't know if I'm ready and all this stuff. And I was mm-hmm. like, come in my spot. I'm going to give you a great... <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. Like you, and we and we rolled with it. And it yeah. ended up... 
it was one of those because my biggest debate on that particular song is that the violin and the viola are so integral to the actual story of the piece like the the actual emotion that goes along with it and i was using uh vienna symphony which sounded incredible just amazing sample library for samples as samples yeah go, it's it's a good one and being able to use different articulations and everything and i mean it it passed it definitely it sounded good everybody i played it for they didn't know that it was fake but bringing her in and having her there was one particular track it was um we did three takes and it was the very last take of the day and i was like you know what go to town i don't throw away the sheet music because i mean she came in sight read i had written all the violin and the viola parts but she helped me out with because i did my syllabus wasn't working sibelius however you say that <laughs> wasn't working quite right that day so i wasn't able to put it into her actual registration i swear and, i didn't know about the homework my syllabus <laughs> <laughs> It's at the beginning of the book. I threw that away like <laughs> days ago. Um, yeah, but I gave her one track where I was like, throw the sheet music away, just do your thing. You know the song well enough by now. We've listened to it probably 60 times at this point. So I just want you to go. And those are a lot of my favorite little things that just make the whole piece come alive. These tiny little things. Yeah, that, that just, I mean... That's the technical the term little, for it. But, yeah. <laughs> the no, speaking of string players in technical terms, they do call you on that stuff. It, it's true. Yeah, I mean, because it saves time if you're mm -hmm. literate in the terminology. And of course, if you want to be a great string player, especially, you came up in the classical school. Mm -hmm. And so there are words for things like the gliss and the mm -hmm. pormento and all the different things. I don't even know if I said that right. <laughs> um, but yeah, sometimes I'll sing things to a player and they'll hear my bad singing and they'll actually play it out of tune <laughs> you know the intonation you want it like this you know oh you want it like that and you know it's funny I've worked with some great players who mess around with you a little bit like that mm -hmm. as a producer mm -hmm. but it's cool when you get somebody who's able to actually know what you mean and just mm -hmm. go with it and they're literate enough to know the terminology but they're also musical enough to you know really feel what it is you're trying to do a lot of times with up-and-coming producers and people who are doing stuff that's self funded you don't always have everything where you would want it to be sometimes mm -hmm. this great player is playing to a midi track because later there's going to be other parts overdubbed that they don't hear yet and you, you almost have to when you're that player in that situation you have to kind of create the feel mm -hmm. or at least hear into the intention of what the composer is doing and sort of bring it to life even though you don't have the ideal working conditions of a 12-piece orchestra to overdub with of course and yeah. that's what really i think impresses me as a producer is when i meet those players who can communicate in that language with you as the artist or the composer or the producer and make it work make it live mm -hmm. make it breathe yeah it is nice to have that terminology what i found with all the music theory and classical training and everything that i've received is that it simply speeds up the process it's mm -hmm. not even so much that you play better because of it it's just really communicating those ideas in a very fast way it's like i work with a lot of people that don't know those kind of terminologies and I do a lot of scores for film and TV and sound design and a lot of what I'll get is hey man, it just seems like the just seems like the note needs to like stop like it needs to be like more rhythmic oh okay uh, then I'll go through and I'll make everything staccato or at least what they're looking for and they're like oh my god that's it and it's like all right cool that's mm -hmm. called staccato for you in the future when you're trying to describe that to somebody well you know it was funny my first musical collaborating partner we were kids 
and we had this neighborhood band and I remember she didn't play any instruments and had no musical training. So a lot of what I would do is she'd be like, it's just not like it has to be more, you know, and whatever. (laughs) And I'd have to figure out what she meant. And mm-hmm. I almost felt like recording by proxy as if she could inhabit my body and use my hands to touch the computer <laughs> and mm-hmm. make it happen. She would. So she'd just sit there and get mad at me for like, come on, just like, <laughs> but uh, you know, I understand yeah. now as a creative, sometimes you just need the, the process to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a great engineer, a great side musician does for you is help you to get your ideas across faster and mm-hmm. and more transparently so that the intention behind the sound you're creating just comes forth mm-hmm. and um certainly i've used you on some stuff as a player mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that i admire about working with you i mean it's been great being able to throw well, you in some you. spots where i need a thing so usually like i i need a rhythm track mm-hmm. and you and i can tell where it's trying to go but it's just something to glue it all together mm-hmm. and if you didn't know what was trying to happen you wouldn't be able to provide that glue right and i think that's kind of a testament to your philosophy of playing mm-hmm. your philosophy of kind of being that john paul you know kind of out of the limelight kind of working man yeah musician And I value that very much. It makes me think of, I wish I knew exactly the right names, but the name that comes to mind is Leland Sklar. Okay. The bassist. You know, I mean, he plays with everybody. I mean, I think the first time I ever saw him play live was with Phil Collins Mm. at a concert in the 90s. I mean, he's on everything. There's these guys that you, you only know if you're a musician and they just travel around and they work with different people and they it reminds me of two let's say Bonnie Raitt or Shell Crow is playing their guitar and they play guitar well enough you mm-hmm. know and there's always the person sitting next to them that's right. playing either mandolin or playing mm-hmm. banjo or playing you know, dobro or playing another guitar making them sound good mm-hmm. and that that role in music is so vital i think mm-hmm. it's what gives that polish it's what gives that professionalism to an otherwise great songwriter like Cheryl Crow, for instance, mm-hmm. who amazing songwriter. I'm sure she's playing guitar reasonably well, but she's never going to spend all of her marbles right. becoming a great guitarist, nor should she. But just having that extra experience, it just vibes. It just makes the thing happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, I think a lot of people, when they want to become musicians and they go through the school or take lessons or anything like that, they don't realize that being a great musician often puts you in that position and uh, a lot of the ego stops them and they they're like oh well i'm not the star of the show i must not be very good i they get disappointed and then ultimately put it down and go you know sell real estate or do people's taxes you know know? i'm not going to mention any names (laughs) but (laughs) selling real estate hit a funny bone for me. Um, So, yeah, but here's the thing about being a great instrumentalist is that love it or hate it, you know, most music is about the singer. Mm -hmm. And so it's about the story. If you can set the stage Mm -hmm. for that vocal and that lyric, that's when magic happens Mm -hmm. to the audience. Like if something's trying to be too loud or too over the top or upstaging mm-hmm. another instrument, there's there's times for that, but most of the time, no. Yeah. <laughs> most of the time. Every, it's the same as, you know, like all those blues or you listen to old jazz groups and each one takes a solo. It's Everybody gets their moment to shine, but during that person's solo, everybody else is chilling and vibing and keeping this blanket 
there's actually a movie called Music and Lyrics with uh, Hugh Grant and uh, Drew Barrymore from yeah. uh, a few a few years ago, and I really liked how they described how um, the vocal and the lyrics are the story of what's going on, and the music's the emotion, the emotional exactly. impact. And if you if you tell a story completely dry without any substance without any emotion or you know inflection in your voice if it's just straight monotone people aren't going to get the idea as strongly and then you can also use that emotion to play around with the words and uh come up with multi-layered meanings give it in one colors. lyric yeah, yeah give it layered meanings and mm-hmm. and without that it's it's just dry and and bland relatively and it's yeah. just another one of those songs i mean Especially with the digital revolution, we've been so oversaturated with with music because, I mean, it it took the power out of those A&R guys' hands and let people produce and make their own music from anything. And it really allowed us a lot of freedom artistically. But, you know, as a catch-22... With great freedom comes great (laughs) responsibility. (laughs) And saturation. Deep, deep saturation. So you get a lot of... poor quality schlocky (laughs) shit. Exactly. Exactly. You get these half-baked ideas, but a lot of... I I mean, it also makes me kind of sound like a dick saying that people's artwork isn't really art. But yeah, basically it's just another one of those tracks that are out there in the world that are just bland and they don't say anything... Um, and then people wonder why their music isn't getting noticed or why they're not doing very well or why isn't this selling or I do live shows because everybody's drunk and happy but they don't realize that the real difficulty in getting your music out there is just imagine if you're in the morning you're competing with talk radio uh, with sports with political radio and that's what people listen to on their way to work and that's why those hit songs that people, you know, are flipping through the stations and it just catches them and pulls them in. Because there's just that that thing, that lightning in a bottle that we're all chasing to create this this art piece that just grabs people and pulls them in. That no matter what's going on in the world around them, there's just something about that that just grabs their soul, you know? Yeah. And we call it Hook, which I, the Hook. Um, right. Which I think we've been desensitized to that word. Well, but it's also an energy I think, too, that you're trying to capture. When you said lightning in a bottle, what I thought of was like pretty young thing that's been playing in my iPod for a while. <laughs> you know, it's like that intro that's you know, I mean, it's just right off the bat. And it's like one of those things where it actually if you listen to the, the notes of it, like the way it comes in, it almost comes in in the middle. Like it doesn't you know, it's got this little like kind of teaser at the beginning with that little Mm-hmm. so it, it almost like it's all it's like a party that's already started and you show <laughs> up and then you're like oh yeah oh ooh. you know right, like you know, you know i mean <laughs> and that's the thing is like people want something to make them feel good or lift them up or mm. to at least uh, help them put a voice to what they're feeling it's mm. not everybody is able to do that yeah so i think that's the magic of music and it's not that uh, you know, a lot of ideas that I've heard people put out on their CDs, it's not that there's not good ideas and good art in that or mm-hmm. or good concept, but I think a lot of times the execution is lacking. So, you know, or it's like maybe the idea was kind of released after, it's like when you turn in the paper or after working on it all night and mm-hmm. you didn't go you didn't, you like, didn't proofread. You didn't proofread. Mm-hmm. You didn't take the time to rewrite it and make sure it was coherent and like you actually, you know, had a point. <laughs> that that she like 
That's a sentence in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And not to say that great art can't come out of the off the cuff because I think some of the best art. Absolutely. Does. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a certain craft to writing a song. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to learn. And same with other parts of the process of making a CD. I'm going to say CD. I'd sound dated, but mm-hmm. <laughs> or a, a release that you're going to put out. It's not just as easy to like hit the publish button. There's a lot of craft that goes into how you record something, mm-hmm. and also how you prep yourself for giving a good performance. Whether or not you're connecting with the emotion of the lyric, you know, whether or not your voice is warmed up, whether or not mm-hmm. you're any good at your instrument. Your or car not. just got towed and you have to walk into this session and somehow leave everything at the door and then enter into this. Your, your car just got towed, but the song is about, you know, being in love and happy and... and right. Or maybe it's, uh, ironically, would be driving down the highway or something, you know, it takes, freeing and liberating like it that. It takes practice as a performer Mm -hmm. to be able to get into the right headspace. I mean, I've been working with a client for a while who is really, really good at that, Um, had done a lot of stage performing, doing covers, and I think because she's a performer, Mm -hmm. is able to put that stuff aside that gets in the way. And a lot of times for artists, I think it's self-doubt, like, Mm -hmm. you know, nervousness. Am I any good? You know, am I going to fuck up? And this is a high stress environment in the recording studio. I mean, like it shouldn't be, but it can definitely be, especially if you're, you're not comfortable with it. You're, you're in the center of this room. You're all by yourself. There's this guy walking around and making sure that all the microphones are perfect and everything's plugged in. And, uh, you start hearing yourself getting turned up on the, uh, in, in your headphones and, do I it can say something I can't hear that, right? and it's like you, you know, don't want to say something. Yeah. I'm gonna sound needy, mm-hmm. and you you don't want to mess up. You definitely don't want to mess up because then this is what you've been wanting for so long, and finally you're in this chair and you're in front of the microphone, and it's like don't don't fuck it up, don't uh, please God, God please don't, and then sure enough that that tension can often come through in the playing. So the more ra- relaxed you are. Catching it the really vibe. matters. I mm-hmm. can hear it. And I think the audience doesn't know they can hear it, but they can certainly hear it. Yeah. And that's why people who make it look easy on stage or on recordings and movies and things like that, people who disappear into their role mm. are what people enjoy hearing and seeing. Um, like Ludovico. Um, I was actually talking with somebody last night about, we were watching videos of Ludovico Analdi, amazing composer, pianist from, I believe, Italy. And he just did one of what may be his last American tour, came through UCLA, and I got to actually watch him. And he's another one of those perfect examples of like, it, first of all, he's got his back to the audience, doesn't even care, he's facing his band. Uh, but if you watch his hands, it's like, it, no matter how complicated or crazy the line is, it's just, they're floating. It looks like they're barely even moving. I mean, his wrists don't move extremely at all. You'll see his fingers dazzle a little, little bit. But it's just the ease that he plays. And when you listen to his recording, and especially being there at his concert, it's just everything's coming through. Every every bit of an intention um, is coming through his, his work right then and there, right in front of you. And that's that's capturing that moment. That's what we... Our jobs as audio engineers, musicians, uh, especially the audio engineering you're capturing a moment that's never happened before and never will happen again. Um, I had a uh, a music sight reading teacher named Sid Jacobs. Still, I believe he still teaches at Musicians Institute. 
And his was one of my favorite explanations of sight reading. And he's like, Dustin, once you start this piece of music, every 16th note, every quarter note has never happened before and will never happen again. And once you start that piece, it's not, you can't shift the time. Each moment has its own particular moment. And if you missed it, if you messed up, you missed that note, it's gone. With so many choices at your fingertips these days, it can seem overwhelming. So I create sound developed the artist advisement session so you can talk to an expert just like me who can help you navigate your creative and technical landscape. We love helping you look, sound, and feel your best. Go to iCreateSound.com to book your first discovery call and tell us that you heard about us on the podcast. Now back to the show. You keep moving and you make it a part of it. Mm-hmm. As you know, I think some of the best performers, when they screw up, you would never know because exactly. they make it a part of the thing. You know, it's <laughs> that's like, the difference between a good guitarist and yeah. a great guitarist. A great guitarist knows how to hide his mess ups. Ironically, Ludovico, the Ludovico was the name of my band that I was in <laughs> in my twenties. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. like this classic rock, modern rock. Like when I saw the ad at the local music store, it was I'm looking for keyboard player influences, Led Zeppelin. Yes, and Smashing Pumpkins. Nice. <laughs> and I was like, that is I'm in. quite a pedigree. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good combo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, nobody got the reference. It was like a very obscure <laughs> Clockwork Orange reference. I didn't get it. Since then, everybody that hears that name who knows me is like, Ludovico, you know, because it was a cool band. It was, mm-hmm. it was awesome. So you're from Texas. Mm-hmm. And you're originally from Austin, is that right? Uh, Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, well, grew up in Grapevine um, all the way up until I guess I was about 13, and then we moved to Fort Worth, and I lived there all the way until I was about 20, I guess, I, yeah, I was 21. I had just turned 21, um, and then I ended up moving out here. I was uh, working as a stuntman, actually, at the time, bouncing around Texas, doing a bunch of independent ones. And I swear I don't know him from stunts. That's the weird thing. <laughs> that's the, yeah, yeah. That's the really funny thing, because I remember coming over here for the first time to take a look at the studio, because um, I actually met you, of course, through Pacific Radio, which is a pro audio data uh, and video cabling uh, like company. Wires, yeah. yeah. When I was building my studio, I was there twice a week mm. almost. <laughs> yeah, and that, at the time I was working there... Um, it was a it was a good little gig. It's a great company. I hope they don't go out of business anytime. The way of Radio Shack, which yeah. would suck. A lot of a lot of those old electronic stores, um, they're they're gone. You know, Electronic City, a lot of places like that. So yeah, Pacific Radio, I hope they stick around because I mean, where else are we going to get silver plated uh, XLR ends and you know Canary Quad Star mic cables and stuff like Quad we're, Star, yeah, Quad Star. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that took so long to unsheath the jacket mm-hmm. of the quad. But it's good stuff, man. That's what my cables are made of now. Oh man, well the the lady at um, Maria, she I believe she's still making cables there. They have a custom cable department, and Canari invented a machine to strip the uh, to detangle that uh, the, the shielding. Yeah, the yeah. braiding around the sh- for the shield, and she still does it faster than. Than, than the machine yeah it's, it's like a john henry situation <laughs> dude it's it's so crazy i i studied her technique to try and figure it out like yeah. to get it down because a lot of a lot of the cables i make and just in general the that particular braiding style is it just it works amazingly for electromagnetic rejection yeah well and actually the the way they designed the interior wires they 
phase cancel more mm-hmm. external EMF noise, which is great. So they're great for the road. Mm-hmm. They're super solid. They're like bulletproof. Sorry, nerding out on wires here yeah. for a second. Oh, but my God. Wait, Throw some case, tech flex on the outside. In case you need someone to solder your stuff, Dustin <laughs> does great work. I don't know if he wants to be known for that, but I'm going to give uh, him a little plug. Not known for it, but uh, I definitely do. I, I've done so much of it. It's easy peasy to me, and it's it's meditative. It's a very zen experience, you know, making, like, uh, especially at, when I was working for Avalon, they have a studio called Lola over in, uh, I guess it would technically be... Studio City slash Burbank slash North Hollywood. It's like in that really ambiguous area <laughs> of uh, uh, like Coenga and the 101. It is. Uh, it's. Uh, I think underneath was, the power line somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that, that. I think they they actually their roof was uh, had lead in it to um, to help with that stuff. Wow. It, yeah, because it was be a studio surprised. beforehand. Yeah. And they do telescoping ground. I mean, uh, Tom Fritz, one of the most amazing audio engineers I, I've been Technical able to... Technical stuff, blah, blah, yeah. blah. People <laughs> tuning off the podcast. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. no, it can get really cool. We could get really deep into that. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And it's so rare that you actually find somebody that knows what you're talking about. So it's like, oh, I'm really into this stuff, too. It's I like, know. It's like two Star Wars nerds <laughs> that are like super, super like deep. Like, do you like Boba Fett? Oh, well, I like Boba Fett. No, I like Tango Fett. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Wedge Antilles was actually, you know, uh, a hermaphrodite what <laughs> yeah totally yeah it was, it was in series three of uh, whatever book um you can go deep and deep and deep yeah uh but yeah i was working over there and uh that's how i met you and i remember coming over here and i was like there's a lot of stunt rigging and stuff and i i had no idea and then i found out that your family was sebby evans and lane levitt and everything and then yeah it was just kind of one of those funny it's weird how the world just kind of revolves around yeah, but I moved out here, uh, slotted for Prison Break, or at least a few episodes, and then we were uh, also looking into getting on Heroes. At the time, me and my stunt partner, uh, Josh Tessier, he, he's still doing um, stunts and doing really well. He's uh, choreographing, uh, uh, who who is he doing it for? I, I know it's Nickelodeon, I'm trying to remember remember the, the show, but anyway, total side point. Um, but yeah, moved out here, uh, the writer strike hit, unfortunately, which was a... Uh, that was a big deal. Oh, my God. That was such a kick in the that balls. That ruins a lot of careers. <laughs> yeah. Was, I mean, when you expect, okay, I'm getting 762 a day. I'm slotted for at least one episode that's like a couple days of shooting. All right. That'll get me set up in a place and all that stuff. And uh, when that fell out, I mean, we did a few independent pictures, <laughs> little ones that I don't think anybody would know mm-hmm. anything about. Like one was one Some, was Night of the Templar, which was really funny. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. it was. Uh, I ended up... I was back at in texas years after we had done the movie and it was at the the final death rattle of uh blockbuster right so this, this where you one, could get really cheap videos <laughs> for like a dollar yeah exactly for your um, home my mom library. was obsessed yeah <laughs> my mom was obsessed with uh I, when blockbuster was open afterwards so i mean i was home visiting her and she was like oh let's go down to blockbuster see if we there are any cool movies and we're walking around and in this dark dim lit corner of blockbuster in a pile of because this whole place had been ransacked i mean they were getting rid of everything there was night of a templar just sitting there and i was like oh my god i was in this movie and it was like the holy grail was shining <laughs> with the lights and like, and like oh you exactly. must own this movie so you can watch how bad it is yeah it was it was it was terrible i i got i went when i got I back mean, home shit, some of that stuff you can't find <laughs> you i worked on this one thing called nightmare yeah. room where i slid a car and uh and i i can't find it like it doesn't exist it was like mm-hmm. just an indie like they went sag ultra 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 low budget or something like that mm-hmm. and 
it just disappears there's no copies yeah like boston girls the one that we shot we flew out to boston we did um that one it was with danny trejo uh was the only i think oh parasomnia no nightmare room was a nickelodeon thing parasomnia it was called Mm. sorry continue Uh, no you're good um yeah i I think there was a lot of conflict between producers or I, i don't know the full story but basically it just that one never saw the light of day um that was a lot of fun though to be on that set yeah um but yeah after that i i knew that it just wasn't for me uh the life i it was a great thing to do like basically i started when i was 14 doing the stunt thing and then did that all the way up until about 23 24 and that's when i really like i knew i was more worried about my hands and my hearing than i was about the stunts that i was doing and especially in such a high risk profession with other people relying on you i knew that it if I had those concerns, then I wouldn't be 100% focused. And, right. you know, I knew there was time. So I left that trade and focused on music, which was a big, big part of me. As a matter of fact, the Shadows Requiem that we listened to, I wrote that at the tail end of when I was doing stunts. I actually wrote it in this. Uh, so we were staying at, in Beverly Hills uh, in a what was essentially an abandoned mansion. Um, it was hmm. owned, it was owned by Joe and Renee, uh, well, Joe Bologna and Renee Taylor. And they, uh, it was actually Shirley Temple's old house at 613 North Arden. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Some ghosts in that house. Yeah, right. Oh man. We have so many stories. Me and my buddy Moose and, and, uh, and Josh, um, we, we all lived, we crashed there for a little bit cause our, basically we were living in Sun Valley. Our landlady was lived in the back of the house. Um, we were dirt poor because there was no stunt, there was no SAG stunt work or, uh, and since we were already SAG, it's like, we can't do non-union stuff. I mean, we did, right. whatever. Well, you but, know, uh, yeah, that's a tough thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think some musicians in AFM deal with that. Uh, I should mm-hmm. probably strike that part from the podcast. <laughs> I don't know anything. Grace. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. It's, going. Uh, well, I mean, like I'm, I'm not working with SAG anymore, so that's, that's a plus. Um, but yeah, and anyway, so we, we were dirt poor. Um, she was living in the back of our house. Her Vato boyfriend was just constantly over messing, causing trouble. Both of them were. And we just knew that it was unfair for them, unfair for us to be in that situation. So that was actually right after Boston Girls when we were working with their son, uh, Joe, sorry, Gabe Bologna. And so they put us up. They were like, well, if you need a place to stay, essentially this house, um, they own the house and everything, but... About three years prior to us living there, uh, there was a leak and they had gone to Italy for like three or four months, something like that. And there was a leak throughout the house. So the entire interior of the house had gotten soaked and there was a big mold problem and all that stuff. So Mm. they had to literally strip off all the drywall, all of the walls, clear out all the mold. And three years after that fact, uh, that's when we were staying there because they were at the point where they were debating on whether they wanted to just trash the house and then sell the plot. Or if they wanted to remodel the house and continue living there. So it was, but basically no walls in this place. Uh, But the most incredible thing about it was that their living room, all bare wood and everything like that. But it was basically the the shape of like a steeple, like a a big church kind of steeple deal. And big vaulted ceilings. And I would sit there and if you sat in front of the fireplace and played, it just had the most incredible acoustics in there. And that's actually where I originally came up with um, the main guitar line that goes through Shadows Requiem, um, as well as a couple of my other tunes that I have out there. Um, uh, one's called The Haunting. That one was, I'm pretty sure I got from a ghost in that house. 
because it's got like this really heavy presence. I, I always felt like there was a heavy presence and a really like light, almost childlike presence inside the house anytime I was in there. And uh, I was writing this writing this tune, and I made sure that I did a nod to both the the heavy more experienced voice it didn't sound like angry or it didn't feel angry or anything like that it just felt weighted with experience and um made sure that the lighter side whatever that spirit was inside that house gave them a voice uh in that tune and i i mean i wrote that whole thing in maybe about 20 minutes wow yeah I know that you sort of sort of jump tangents here for a second, but I think it's a relevant tangent. Okay. Um, you are very into the horror genre mm-hmm. um, in some of your work. I know you're doing a band um, that uh, is uh, the Unmanned Dane. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that it's more of a show idea that my buddy actually approached me with uh, about, th- I guess it would be about three years ago now. Um, he's had it around for a little bit longer than that. But at the time, at Universal Studios, they were doing Halloween Horror Nights and they were getting rid of Bill and Ted, which had been there for a, a long time. And basically, the story arc was that Bill and Ted, every year, would fly around pop culture and bring all these people together. So you'd have guys like... Um, as, a, as a matter of fact, when I met Ron, he was playing the Joker. Um, because that was right after Dark Knight had come out and everything. And... And so the the Joker was definitely in there. Did a great job. Um, he's also done Beetlejuice at Universal Studios for about the last twenty years or so. Great, great guy. But anyway, he approached me with this character called Unmanned Dane, and it's based off this Wendigo. And a Wendigo is essentially like a skinwalker, another term for it. But it's a Native American thing where the skull is essentially possessed with this dark spirit that's been around for thousands of years. And anybody that puts on the skull eventually just like wants to kill and eat everything. Uh, and it, you know, if you cut off its head, then the person closest to it is drawn to put the skull on and then they put the skull on and become the Wendigo and start eating and, and killing everything. And so, you know, natural order of the thought process, let's make a uh, talk show about it. And so it's basically like a mix between the Crypt Keeper, the, uh, um, you know, like Sven kind of in that thread of interviewing uh, people that are in the horror community, whether they're directors, actors, um, composers, uh, and then bringing on like, you know, basically set up the way that the Tonight Show is with a sideshow kind of thing, but actually having like sideshow people, like guys coming out and nailing nails into their nose and the weird stuff that I happen to be really into. And I think it's just incredible. I remember, <laughs> as a matter of fact, one of my shows, I was playing with a band called... Uh, uh, at the time, we hadn't changed our name yet, so we were still called the Fuckets. And uh, <laughs> fucking up your favorite song since 2011. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, and we decided to, uh, all right, this is kind of a weird show. Let's uh, let's throw up some sideshow people, some escape artists in between sets. Because we were, we were all about that, throwing up uh, comedians and different stuff at our shows. And I've never seen a room of 300 people clear out the way they did when Ron started his show. 
Because, uh, I mean, he starts doing, like, the weird thing. He calls it mental floss, and it's basically where he puts a balloon through his nose, into his nose, or in the back of his throat, out through his nose. Oh, wow. Then inflates it and, then like, flosses his, oh my goodness. his brain. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't until he brought out the cockroaches and the crickets and started eating them that everybody was just, like, gone. I'm out. Gone. That's Every, it. I'm everybody. Out. It started with the women, <laughs> and then all the guys were like, oh, my God, all the women are gone. I'm not, I'm not going to stick around wow. for this. <laughs> that's crazy. Well, that's cool. I think you told me a little bit about the variety show would be really cool. We'll definitely mm-hmm. have you plug whatever future version of that is at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just to kind of jump ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. one of the things that was kind of an interesting transition for you, so you moved to... LA to become a stunt man and you realize mm-hmm. that music was the thing and then you got a job working in electronics mm-hmm. and then that fell out mm-hmm. at some point you found that life was kind of putting you in another direction absolutely and I remember yeah. at that time you had kind of come by the studio and we'd kind of you know like oh yeah you should come by because we just kind of hit it off I mean mm-hmm. you know it was like okay we need to know each other which is a very good thing like mm-hmm. whenever you meet someone if you're in LA or wherever you meet someone you just hit it off with and you have common interests it's usually good to stay in touch yeah um, it's hard to find good people out here or at least people that you can it's funny how with as many people that are in this town how easy it is to feel isolated and alone yeah, well, especially because LA is big and geographically spread out, mm-hmm. so it's not like there's many community centers. You know, I mean, yeah. maybe out here a little bit, but not even that. So I want to talk about this. Is more, I think, it's some things that people will go through listening to this and have something to gain from. I mm. want to talk to you about your switch from nine to five mm. to freelancing. Yeah, and what that's been like. Uh, definitely, uh, it was a leap. And it needed to happen. What really led me to it, um, because essentially, uh, if I wanted to be a tech, I was in a perfect position to do so at the job that I was at, which uh, I was working at Avalon Design. And it was a great, great job. Um, The people that I worked with, I enjoyed the job itself, what I was doing. You know, I was running the QC department. I was also doing a lot of shipping. And like, it was basically me and three, four other people that we're running the company for about a year and a half. And even as great as that job was, because they had a studio, I was able to see Tom uh, often and help continue to build the wiring at Lola. Um, I was able to be around these pieces of gear like Ike Turner 737 coming through to be cleaned and repaired before it was sold. I mean, the 2077, which is the mastering EQ that came from MasterDisc and has... I forgot exactly what the number was, but well into the tens of thousands of records that were mastered with that one single piece of gear and just all the music and energy. I'm a big believer in the flow of energy in general and without going, that's a whole rabbit hole we can That's a we can rabbit hole down. I would very yeah. much like to go down. No, no, let's talk about that. Well, one of the neatest things about just the, the service center in general, some of the pieces that we got, you know, like uh, at one point, Bex two U5s came in. We had Peter Frampton's two U5s come in. Ike's 737, Ike Turner's 737. So I can only imagine, his son actually sent it in to be fixed and then it was going to be sold. But I can only imagine how many times either Tina sang through it or Ike did himself or who actually put their sound through that. Uh, And one piece of gear I was talking about specifically was this 2077, which is their mastering EQ. Uh, You know, roughly ten dollars to $13,000 if you want to buy one new. Um, which they don't really do anymore. You have to have it custom ordered from them now. But uh, 
it was the one from MasterDisc, and we were talking about how many records were mastered through it, and I think his guesstimation, it was a ridiculous number, something where like 13,000 albums since it was originally bought by MasterDisc, and what really was impactful about having those pieces of gear in the shop was just the flow of energy that, that gets ingrained into electronics, which was why I fell in love with the idea of even working on electronics and our ability to manipulate electrons the way we are from being able to flick a switch, how much manipulation of physical elements and especially something like an electron being able to conduct its flow and everything like that. And basically we're energetic beings. We're constantly giving off, you know, the the whole idea of aura, uh, the whole idea of vibe. We're constantly giving off these electrons. I mean, one cool thing that really dawned on me when uh, as you know, there have been a lot of small hints about how energy and this whole flow and, and aura thing is, is real to me, uh, was if you take a power cable and set it next to a microphone cable, you'll hear the 60 cycle hum because everything's permeable. Right. And everything can transfer energy from one thing to another. And essentially, we, if you break us all the way down in the quantum me- mechanic idea, you know, you get enough... Uh, bosons together you start making quarks you start getting enough quarks together you start making protons and neutrons and then you start making atoms and then eventually you get enough energy bundled up together einstein's theory on it was that the mass times the speed of light squared is how much energy is contained within your mass so you're constantly giving off this this energy and the idea of consciousness being our pretty much our ability to control and direct electrons in that way uh it, that's what really made me fall in love with music as well is that playing a guitar is uh, an object of transduction, um, which is just turning one form of energy into another, like pedaling a bicycle or... Right. It's like I sing and then that muscle movement plus air creates a vibration that moves the air molecules and then it hits the microphone. And the microphone's job is to turn the pressure waves into an electrical pulse Mm -hmm. and that converts into electrons that flow down a wire and into whatever thing you're recording i mean it used to be magnetic tape right Mm -hmm. and that used to embed in that pattern and then you would you know reverse the process you'd you'd hit play on the tape and it would send the electrons back through the equipment and then out the speaker and the speaker cone wiggles and Mm -hmm. pushes the air and then recreates the sound of me going, ah, you know, whatever. Which is incredible to me. And that's why it's so important to, and that's where the debate of whether analog is better than digital. Oh, dear. No, yeah. let's not. <laughs> that's, that's like where, it, that's the true like fulcrum to where each side, <laughs> at least for me, it was whether, whether you convert it to, into ones and zeros, which are still electrical signals, they're just digitized. Or if you're... They're binary. They're on or off. They're yes or no. Exactly. It's like, yeah. And then the based on thousands and thousands of on, off, yes, no signals, you get this appearance of something smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And with, uh, especially the way that a tube works, that was one thing uh, that I learned at Avalon um, that I, I mean, I knew how tubes work, but I didn't know like exactly how they work. So and break you, it down in layman's terms. Like well, you basically got these plates. So the the whole idea behind a preamp is to 
increase the voltage of whatever you, you were talking about that alternating current that comes from a little magnet moving inside a coil there you go creating an alternating current that runs down a microphone cable but this signal is very weak a uh, small magnet isn't unless these you know microphones were gigantic you wouldn't actually be able to recreate that voltage on the other side so that's the whole idea behind really having these you know preamps and everything and how a tube works is that your so the idea is the that vacuum with, tube you're talking about electrical right. vacuum tube yes yeah. yes like what you used to see in the back of old radios yeah exactly they look like light bulbs but they're not exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> and what what happens there is so essentially first of all you have a vacuum so you don't have any airflow issues like you're you're not having any it's the same as like if you took a feather and a baseball a lot of time in science class especially like middle school science they'll have both of them inside a vacuum and they fall at the same speed and that's the whole Galileo thing. So that's essentially what's happening inside of a tube. And you've got these two plates. Uh, one, I know you, nobody can really see my hands on, on this thing, but one's at the top and one's at the bottom. And it's shooting, firing these electrons from one plate to the other. Oh, wow. And, and then you send your signal through that maze, through right. that, that battlefield of electrons flying in, in and out. And the ones that... I know this sound. The ones that are supposed to stick, right, are the ones that actually line up with your. The ones that are the same frequency, uh, they line up with the signal that's already going through it, and then that's it adds voltage naturally, randomly. Oh, weird! Right, and that's where you. So it's get like that. swimming through the sea of electrons, swimming through with your unique vibration shape, and then sort of like coming across the other side, like you but bigger. Mm-hmm. If you're an electron, exactly. If, you're, more, if, if your pattern powerful. of electro, yeah, mm-hmm. if your pattern of electrons, it's like imagine like mini me on one plate, and then like maxi me on the other side, just picking up electrons along the way mm-hmm. to become bigger. But exactly. I'm still look like me. Exactly. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you grew and you got stronger, and then now that can actually be taken and sent out to uh, an alternating current fashion to the speaker, like you were saying, to be able to recreate those SPL levels. Right. Because ultimately. We don't hear sound. It does not exist. What we hear as sound are actually just particles slapping off uh, off of each other, flying through air, creating what we understand to be sound. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're able to recreate it with a speaker that doesn't look like a pair of vocal cords. Right. That doesn't look like a guitar. Right. But it's the same principle, which is creating the same pressure wave vibration pattern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Man, it kind of reminds me of the field of cymatics a little bit, like where people are taking like a one by one foot plate and then they're putting a note through it, like A444 or whatever. And then when they put salt on it or whatever kind of little sand or something, based on the note, like, you know, C or A or B Mm. flat, it will change the geometric shapes that the plate is making. Mm -hmm. Like, it's unbelievable to watch. Like, it's the most- I love those. It's the coolest thing ever. And so, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you were talking about sound is vibration and energy is vibration. And you were talking about vibrating strings of energy and and various things. And you're talking about the energetic imprint that goes through a piece of equipment electrically Mm -hmm. and is shaped by this, this, you know, design system of- circuits and electrons and things that have been crafted by a person who 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 mm. is detailing that product to to shape that sound in a certain way and yeah. you were talking about subtle signals that are so imperceptible that you wouldn't you wouldn't notice them unless they were amplified and then you were mm. talking about how there are subtle energies that 
a human conducts that are、mm. imperceptible to the human senses. You mean just like the aura and that that whole idea? Or? Yeah, I mean,、mm-hmm. like that to me is kind of like you know a lot of this stuff is really hard to measure, and、mm-hmm. so a lot of people just go, "Oh, that doesn't exist." But、mm-hmm. I know that being a musician, every single musician I know who's ever played in a group of people understands fundamentally what it's like to just tap into that. Greater consciousness,、mm-hmm. and just there's something about making music together when it's harmonious, where you're like, oh, like I know what you're gonna play, and I know exactly what I have to do. It's just this thing that you you tap into this energy. Yeah, the common consciousness is a great way to put it. There's a lot of debate on whether consciousness is within the mind or it's projectable.、Um, a lot of the People arguing that it's projectable and it's it, consciousness doesn't exist within you, but outside of you as well, and in and out at the same time,、uh, is the whole idea of if somebody is watching you, even if it's a security guard through a camera, they've run a lot of experiments on on that alone, and people feel like somebody's watching them. Like sometimes you'll be in、oh, an、wow. elevator and you just kind of. I've noticed it happens, and I just kind of like automatically look up the the camera. I don't know if you know one hundred percent if he's been looking at me or not, but I, you just get that feeling.、Mm-hmm. You know, well, everyone's had. I mean, almost、yeah. anyone I can think of has had the experience of you're sitting there and you feel someone watching you, and then you turn around and then and all of a sudden you turn around、looks. and you catch somebody, and they're like, oh, like you know,、mm-hmm. how did you know? Like, I mean, that's the the. the I、mm-hmm. mean, there's certain experiences like that that I'm like, okay. Almost everyone listening to this podcast has had that experience.、Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Mm. How did you know? How did I know? Well, that's、oh. the that's the、oh, that's yeah, the rhetorical、yeah. question, yes, right?、Absolutely. You know, because I ran a bunch of tests with these because、uh, I, especially when I was going to Musicians Institute, I had a lot of time on the train and I had a lot of time walking from place to place, right in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard, where thousands of people. And it's funny because you'll you'll be sitting there, sunglasses are the best way to hide it, and I would be even like looking, putting pointing my hat and my head in a different direction. But I would watch somebody, and probably about seven to ten times they would turn around and look at me. Weird. Not. I mean, even though like, and they would just kind of look at me and stare at me for a second because they thought I was looking elsewhere. Well, and Hollywood's a busy place. I went to、mm. Musicians Institute as well. Yeah. Yeah.、Hey. Oh my goodness. Common sense. So、threads. yeah, but it was like it was weird because there was so much energy in that area. I mean, it was、mm-hmm. almost oppressive. There's like. So much going on. There's the Walk of Fame. There's Ripley's. There's the Wax Museum、mm-hmm. right there by. There's the Scientology building. There's so much going on. There's people like totally coked out. <laughs> people losing their minds and tourists and it's just、mm-hmm. a lot of people and a lot of. I mean, I always felt like whoa, like you know, even before I noticed those kind of things, I noticed that. Like I don't know if anyone's ever been to Hollywood, but it's intense.、Mm-hmm. And so, for someone to like in a huge crowd of people like that to turn around and look at you、mm-hmm. because you're looking at them like out of the corner of your eye through sunglasses while you're pointed a different direction, by all appearances you're looking somewhere else.、Mm-hmm. And seven out of ten, that's like. I、it's、think someone should do the, a Harvard study on that. That's pretty absolutely. great. Absolutely. And、yeah. another another study that I did was talking about this like subconscious, especially the power of music.、Um, so when I was、uh, I was making my transition out of、uh, working as a stuntman, and、uh, before I started going to school and everything for for music, I would take my guitar everywhere. 
Um, just, you know, like I would always use the excuse, oh, I don't want to leave it out in the heat or whatever. And I would walk into these, you know, parties and social settings or even just hanging out with a couple of my friends, you know, um, I would bring my guitar in. And it started out as like, uh, in order to be anything, the first step is getting everybody to know that you're that something. So it started me just carrying around right. my guitar so people would know that I play guitar and that I am a guitarist. And then it uh, it transitioned into, I, I was really diving into this whole idea of, um, by transduction, sound is our greatest force on affecting everything and just seeing how music truly, and what was that cause? So I Yeah, would, I believe that sound is mm-hmm. one of the most physical manifestations of energy that people can relate to. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, so I would be in these social settings and I would grab my guitar and I would just sit there and I would start playing it. And, you know, most of the time it was super mellow. I'd be chatting with the person or whatever. And I would try different song styles. And so, like, say I would be, I would start playing something, you know, darker, a little more aggressive, uh, you know, more like a little rockier, you know, uh, more like minors and uh, minor sevens and, and just something a little bit darker. You know, I'm, I'm sure that most, anybody that's worked with uh, somebody that's not... A musician that's worked with somebody that's not a musician understands what purple means, what darker means. <laughs> it, just, it takes some time. But I would start playing something that's more aggressive. And not only would people get louder, which you would assume, because I would be playing a little bit louder, but the ultimate thing would be that they would start to disagree with each other more. Whoa. Which is, you know, like, you, you wouldn't expect that, but they they would have more intense conversations they would either disagree more or if they were saying like talking about politics they would get even more steadfast on their own on their own stance double down on their position yeah exactly and Uh the on the reverse i would start playing something you know softer something warmer uh something happier a lot of like c major is just perfect for making people happy um and i would start playing that and you would watch people not only agree with each other more but uh, there would be more like friendly physical contact. Huh. Um, and these are just things that I, I noticed over, it, I probably did that for about three years. Wow. And those were the common threads that I found uh, mm. to be happening each time that I would try, okay, let's try a happy song again. Let's see if if people are actually like, and you'd see like people hug each other more or they'd be talking and then have one of those friendly like arm punch things, you know, like, <laughs> like the girl on the playground, you know, trying to get the boy to you know, be interested in her or yeah. vice versa and you would pull her hair or something like that. <laughs> I saw a lot more of that develop and it was, um, it's a, it's an interesting theory. And I, I mean like I, it's wild, man. I mean, I bet that plays into composing for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think that's truly what understanding your modes are. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, uh, for, for time's sake at Avalon design, it was a great job. Um, yeah, it was even as great as that was and as perfect as the job was, I still went home and I just, I kind of hated myself. It was, so there are two things that I believe that you need to consider before laying on that deathbed, or at least two things that you will consider when you're on that deathbed. And one is what do I get to take with me? And I think we can all agree that whatever we go to, it's not we can't take monetary things, you know, we can't take objects. We can't take things like that. We get to depart this world with in my, what I believe, no matter what you're going to, you get to, you get to take those memories, those, those emotions, those things that you saw, the experiences that you had in your life. That's for you. That's, that's what you get to take with you. 
and you also have to consider what are you leaving behind and you know like my mom always says it's uh make a place better than than when you met it uh so you have to consider what what is that legacy what did you leave behind for everybody and you know i just i couldn't in good conscience say that i would be perfectly happy being known as the guy that spent his life bent over a box with a soldering iron in his hand and i'm not saying that that particular life choice is is at all bad but it just wasn't for me the same thing with stunts uh same thing with my dive into pre-law because originally when i was in high school i was primarily an academic and i was part of this thing called youth and government and i won second best in the state for supreme court litigation so i was good at wow. it i was good at it but i just didn't it just wasn't i had an epiphany i went to uh, georgia state university for this incept thing because they had a really uh, my two spots were either nyu or georgia state because georgia state i could do it for really cheap I have family over there, so I would have been a resident and everything. So I could have gotten that discount on all that. And I was sitting, they split us up into our majors after we kind of did a tour of the school. And everybody that was in the pre-law program, we were all in one auditorium and they were giving like a overview of what the pre-law program would be. And I just remember looking, looking around and I could, it was just really weird. These, these visions of where I could see everybody around me in like 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and I could see their lives playing out as lawyers, as clerks, as judges. And I just knew, uh, I just had this, every time I looked at myself, I saw nothing. I saw, I didn't see that future whatsoever. And that was another one of those epiphanies that it's like, I need to follow exactly this path. Otherwise, by the time I get to that deathbed, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be satisfied with what I did and who I am. And so, yeah, that was the, that was really the moment where it's like, I need to, I need to take this leap. Um, and so I did, and it wasn't easy. Hasn't been easy. I am not used to being this poor <laughs> consistently. Uh, but you know, that's kind of part of the struggle too. I, I also was really important to me when I made the switch was that I only work on things that I really love. And I really want to be part of that legacy. It's a good philosophy. Mm -hmm. it, it was actually, it came from, I watched a bunch of documentaries on just different artists and photographers, uh, famous ones. That's their lifestyle. And just to see how they approached their work. And an artist, uh, visual artist mentality, they go from project to project. And they go from, say, uh, they have one idea that they want to say. And so that's how they move from project to project. And I wanted to change my mentality in music because, you know, I'd been bouncing around and doing this little independent movie here and like composing for it. And I do some dialogue editing on this little thing here, or I do some editing on this track here for this guy, or I join this band and work on an EP. And even, even now it's been a learning process and a development process from that time that I was like, all right, I'm taking this leap. What does this mean? even to now i mean like i've only recently really kind of i have a couple projects left that i'm working on right now but once i'm done with them one is a short film called animus and then another one is the unmandane thing which is going to be a long-standing thing because i'm eventually going to have to build the band called hell if i know and i'll be a guy named dead goat in it which is really exciting to me because ever since i was in high school and i was a super metal head um i've wanted to wear a goat head on stage and this <laughs> is one, one of those little dreams that come true you know in, in ways you never expected 
Um, and that's something else that's been really cool about uh, approaching my art in that way. Because it's allowed me opportunities that I didn't really explore uh, or never thought were really possible. Like I finished up, um, I've got four ballet pieces that ended up, uh, well, they're dance pieces. So one in particular was a big mix of different forms of dance. But that was really interesting and very cool to be part of. Because I, I remember back when I was in college, I actually did, I studied dance. I do about four hours of dance this one particular year. I did four hours every morning, you know, and then I'd go do other classes and then I'd work out and then I'd end up uh, doing a play at night. So it was nice to have that 19 to 22 year old energy. That was pretty fun. I try and keep that up, but. Well, you're certainly yeah. a renaissance man. I, I love it all, man. I That's one that's thing. That's what I love about you. Yeah. I, well, my brother, uh, he passed away when I was uh, 11 years old. Uh, I was in a mm. car accident. Oh, wow. And. Um, Sorry. Uh, it was very impactful that that particular, eh, it's okay, it's been about about 20 years or so, but yeah, it's, it was definitely having that kind of an event happen so early on in my life. I just remember this one particular moment. We were in the motorcade um, going to the actual burial because we had finished with the, the funeral and everything and we were on our way to to the burial site and I just remember looking out my window and like my world ended at that moment like uh, up until that point I mean me and my brother were best friends we had never been more than you know 45 minutes apart from each other um you know it's just we were very close and like just having that kind of and also just the realization that life could be ended so quickly and it just doesn't really dawn on you when you're that young but I was looking outside the window and I saw a gas station and there's still people going to and fro, buying their, you know, energy drink or their coffee, filling up their car with gas, going to the lake and picking up their six pack of beer and everybody else's life and the world just kept turning, even though it had ended for me. And it really made me realize that life keeps spinning without you. And a lot of the things that happen in your life, you, anything, actually, anything difficult in your life, you have a choice. You have two choices. You can either let it run over you and get stuck in that point in the world, or you can move forward. It's also why I love that idea of once you start playing a piece of music, that 16th note has never happened before and will never happen again, because you have to be so ingrained in the present that if you start getting stuck in the past or fill your head too much with the future, then you will miss everything. The only thing that you really have or any of us really have is the present right now, what we're doing. We can plan for the future, but the best way to make God laugh is to make plans, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So I've always strived since that. It was actually funny because I, I wasn't interested in, in like playing music or really anything like that. I mean, I had my dad's guitar around when I was younger but it was really my brother that was like really into playing guitar and that inspired me to play more guitar and um i think eventually would lead to to me becoming a musician in some way well thank you for sharing mm -hmm. dustin you are a good friend and a great <laughs> guy everybody i bring you in on sessions with loves working with you and Aww. so if people would like to work with you uh guitar engineering electronics whatever it is uh composing mm -hmm. where do people reach you 
Um, easiest way would be I'm Dustin Stonebrook. I'm literally the only one. Uh, when my family came over in the middle 1800s from Austria, our original name was Steinbach. And so that directly translated into English as Stonebrook. And I'm literally the only Dustin to be named after that name change. And you also have a brand ID that's Del Senio Sound. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So like DSL Coda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so you what's know, your what's little your... play on the DS thing, Dustin Stonebrook and Del yeah. Senio. Cool. Um, what's your, mm-hmm. do you have like an Instagram or like a Twitter or anything like that? Oh, that uh, can... yeah. Uh, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, Dustin Stonebrook, spelled like it sounds, uh, no E at the end of Brook. Um, uh, quick search. Those are the easiest way. Otherwise, um, you can go to my website, delsenosound.com and uh, spelled like uh, spelled like the, the sheet writing, the sign. But uh, How do you say D-E-L? Uh, it's D-A-L-S-E-G-N-O sound. Com. Okay. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Dustin. That was great. Thanks for being uh, here. No worries. Yeah. No worries. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was awesome. And uh, good luck to you and your future musical endeavors. Thank you very much. Keep turning. It's one of those professions that you never clock out from, and it's one of those things that you'll never be able to retire from. So just Well, as keep long going. as you love to mm-hmm. do it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the Language of Creativity podcast. So since this recording, Dustin has released an EP that he collaborated on with Kai Meyer, a series of demos called High and Dry. And you can get that on SoundCloud. Check it out. It starts Monday morning when you woke up before me. Your note said we could still be friends Tuesday my friends try to pick me up But Wednesday I've had enough of cheering Thursday's no better than Friday Saturday I'm gonna go out Make out with someone new Someone who's just not you